Hey everybody, welcome or welcome back to the Journey Church Podcast. It's Matt here, and at the end of this episode, I'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free Journey app where you can access all of our recent message content. And actually, the app's the easiest way to share all this content with a friend and to keep up with everything going on around here at Journey. Just search Journey Calway in your app store. Now, most importantly, I hope this message inspires you to take your next step in following Jesus. So in the aftermath of the resurrection, Jesus left his followers with a message that would literally change the world. But he also left the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But the question that became so central after Jesus left this earth was, what would the faith of people look like in the aftermath of the resurrection? Because the further away you got from the crucifixion and the resurrection, the more faith was required to believe in the resurrection. For example, the 500 or so people who saw Jesus with their own eyes down across, and then they saw him three days later, a week later, two weeks later, it didn't require any faith for them to believe in the resurrection. I mean, they were able to sit there and have a conversation with him. Some of them had breakfast with him on the beach. Some of them ate dinner with him. Some of them traveled with him and, you know, conversed as they went from one town to another. I mean, 500 people got to see him with their own eyes, hear him with their own ears, touch him with their own hands. They didn't need any faith to believe in a resurrection. But then Jesus left this world. And time began to pass, and more and more people began to hear about the resurrection of Jesus And now they're not able to go and talk to Jesus directly. They're not able to see him with their own eyes. They can only talk to the eyewitnesses. So it required a little bit of faith for them. But again, not a whole lot because it was so easy to investigate. You weren't sure it really happened? Well, just go talk to them and then talk to them and talk to them. And you had 500 plus eyewitnesses you could talk to. It was so easy to investigate. But then time passed. And as time passed and the message began to spread, first outside of the walls of Jerusalem, and then it spread outside of the borders of Israel, now it began to require a little more faith. Because now people were hearing this message, not directly from eyewitnesses, but they were talking to people who had talked to eyewitnesses. And so it was secondhand knowledge, and it required a little more faith to believe. And then as more time passed and as the message spread further, well, you can imagine what happened. Now it's More faith and more faith as you get further and further away from these eyewitnesses. And now here we are 2,000 years later. 2,000 years later, and we do not have the advantage of Peter and Andrew and James and John. We haven't had the opportunity to sit down and have breakfast with Jesus on a beach. We haven't had the opportunity of some of those early followers to, to eat dinner, to sit down and have a conversation. We don't have the chance to see with our own eyes. We can read what the eyewitnesses documented for us. But now, 2,000 years later, In the aftermath of the resurrection, what does it look like for you and for me to have faith? I mean, is it even logical to believe in a resurrection that supposedly happened 2,000 years ago? Or are we just demonstrating blind faith when we do this? Is this one of those fairy tale deals that some of us just need to believe because it helps us get through life and get through difficulties? Or does it make sense to demonstrate faith? And what does that even mean to demonstrate faith in something that happened 2,000 years ago? Speaking of that, what does it look like? What does this faith look like when it runs up against challenges, when it bumps into pressures, when it hits difficulty and painful circumstances? In the aftermath of the resurrection, what's faith look like for you and for me? Well, for the next few weeks, those are the questions I want to answer. Specifically, I want to drill down into two questions. What is faith? What is faith in general? Because you may not realize this, but you're a person of faith. We all demonstrate faith. Faith is not a religious concept. 
It's something every human being practices. We're going to talk more about that next week. And then secondly, what does it mean to have faith in God? When those of us who are Christians, when those of us who follow Jesus say, well, I'm trusting God, what does that even mean? Sometimes it sounds so flippant. Sometimes it seems so irresponsible. Sometimes it seems like we're just passing the buck. What's it really mean to trust God? And if I pray in faith and I ask God to do something, does it mean he has to do it? And what happens if he doesn't? What happens if I'm praying and I believe and I believe and I believe and God still doesn't come through for me? What's faith look like then? What happens to my faith when it bumps into those unanswered questions? See, in my experience, and I'll admit I've sit in a unique seat because I grew up as the kid of a preacher, and now here I am in the business, so to speak. So I have been able to see the behind-the-scenes stories and the behind-the-scenes struggles of so many people when it comes to faith. And in my experience, what I have seen is most of us lose faith, most of us walk away from faith because we have been presented with a faulty, fragile version of faith. For many of us, I think all of us at different points practice this, for many of us, we practice a faith that I would call circumstantial faith. Circumstantial faith depends on what's happening in me and what's happening to me. Circumstantial faith is always impacted by the unexplainable, painful circumstances of life. For example, I believed God would work a certain way, and I believed based on who God is that he needed to do or would do certain things. And then my circumstances hit, the realities of life hit, and God didn't do what I thought he was going to do. God wouldn't do what I thought he should do. I thought God would never let that happen, and it happened. I thought God would always make sure, and he didn't. I was doing all the right things, and I thought I was living just the way I was supposed to, and then this tragedy came into my life anyway. Where was God in the middle of all that? Those, when you have those questions, when I have those questions, and we all have, what we're doing is we're leaning into, we're practicing circumstantial faith. And the reason circumstantial faith is so fragile and is so faulty is because as our circumstances worsen, our faith weakens. This is true for us, isn't it? For most of us, as our circumstances worsen, our faith weakens. It gets weaker. It gets more difficult to hold on. We begin to have questions and doubts. We begin to wonder. We begin to question, you know, I don't know if this is really valid. I'm not sure this is true. As our circumstances worsen, our faith starts to weaken. Now, what is so interesting to me is when I go back and I read the accounts of the early first century followers of Jesus, none of them practiced circumstantial faith. It wasn't even an option for them. It wasn't even on the radar because the kind of great lives that so many of us have been able to experience and been blessed to live, it wasn't a possibility for them. I mean, they were living in the middle of persecution and suffering. Nobody was presenting a faith in the first century of, if you'll follow God, your life will get easier. That was not a selling point because it wasn't happening for anybody. I'll give you an example. So the writer of Hebrews, and we're not sure exactly who that was. Uh, they don't identify themselves. It was probably a man because men mo wrote most of the things in the first century. But the writer of Hebrews was writing to a group of Jewish Christians who were in a terrible situation. They were caught between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people. They were caught between the Roman Empire, who didn't want anything to do with these new Jesus followers who wouldn't claim Caesar was Lord. That seemed like an affront to their power and authority. And they were caught between them and the Jewish people who began to look at this new movement of Jesus followers and go, whoa, 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 we practice Judaism. What you're doing isn't Judaism. It's not even a Judaism 2.0. You're introducing something brand new. You're saying our religion is outdated, that our religion is over, 
then we don't need to keep practicing that. There's something new. And so you could imagine, these are like people without a homeland. They had the Romans after them. They had the Jewish people after them. There was no benefit. There was no practical benefit to these people following Jesus in the first century. It hurt them financially. It hurt them socially. It often hurt them professionally. And it hurt them relationally. And so these early followers of Jesus, as they're dealing with all this persecution and this suffering, they're trying to figure out, is it worth it? And one of the things you may not be aware of is that in the first century, many of these followers of Jesus expected Jesus was going to come back within their lifetime because he had promised, hey, I'm leaving you, but I'm going to come back again one day. I'm going to make everything right. And when they heard that, they assumed, oh, well, it's probably going to be in a few months, maybe in a few years, certainly in our lifetime. But as time went on, as time passed, and Jesus didn't come back, and things continued to be difficult and more difficult and more painful and more challenging, they began to lose hope. And they began to wonder, is this really worth it after all? And they began to wonder, well, if our faith is not making life better, then why should we hold on to our faith? And so the writer of Hebrews writes to encourage them. And here's what I find so fascinating. This is what I want to show you today. When he writes them, he does encourage them to hang on to their faith, but not for the reasons that so many of us have heard. He doesn't say, you need to hang on to your faith because God's going to give you a good life if you'll just hold on. You need to hang on to your faith because God's going to make everything work out. You need to hold on to your faith because God's going to bless you financially. You just hold on. You just believe God's going to make everything happen the way you want to happen in your life. He doesn't say any of that. Instead, he spends the first fourth of this letter he writes to them, helping them to understand and to remember exactly who Jesus is. And then he makes a point, and I'm about to show this to you. He makes a point to them. You should hang on to your faith, not because of any good that you might get out of following Jesus in this life. You should hang on to your faith because of the identity of Jesus, because of who he is. Now remember, he spent about three chapters building a case for exactly who Jesus is. And then I want to read you the challenge he gives them as a result of that. In Hebrews 4, he says this, Therefore, in light of who I've just proven to you Jesus is, therefore, since we have a great high priest, that was something that in the Judaic world, they understood what that meant. He's going, since we have someone who is connecting us with God, Referring to Jesus. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, and then he makes this statement, Jesus, the Son of God. This is so important. He's going, listen, don't don't forget this. You don't follow Jesus because of all the good things that are going to happen to you. You don't follow Jesus because if you follow well enough, then he'll answer all your prayers. You don't follow Jesus because if you follow well enough, then he'll make sure all your plans work out. You don't follow Jesus because if you follow, he'll remove you out of suffering. He'll relieve all of your pain. This was not the motivation in the first century for following Jesus. He says, I want you to remember, you should follow Jesus because he was the son of God. Because we saw him die on a cross, and then three days later, a tomb was empty. We're following Jesus not because it's making our life better right now. We're following Jesus because it is clear who he is, to which we would go, and maybe the people reading this letter went, well, how can you be so confident that this is God in human flesh? And he says, well, I'll tell you, because we saw him. We saw him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you did. We saw him down across. We saw him three days later. We had breakfast with him. We had dinner with him. We talked to him. We touched him. We walked with him. We are certain 
This is who he is. So we don't follow Jesus because it's making our lives easier. We're following Jesus because we don't have any doubt about his identity. And then the writer says, because we are so certain of this, don't forget who you're following. Because we are so certain that Jesus is the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. If we could talk to the writer of Hebrews and we ask him, okay, tell me, what's the foundation of your faith? If we knew all the things that he was facing, all the things that these Christians were facing in their world, all the challenges, all the obstacles, all the difficulties, all the disappointments, all the despair, all the unanswered prayers. And we looked at him and said, okay, why are you still following? What's the foundation of your faith that keeps you committed to Jesus, that keeps you holding firmly to your faith in the middle of these circumstances? You know what he would say? I think he would say this. The foundation of my faith is a historically verifiable fact that Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. That's it. The foundation of my faith is the confidence I have, I am absolutely certain, that God showed up on earth, he lived, he died, and he rose again. And because I am confident of that, I am confident of his character and of his nature. I know I'm looking at my circumstances, and my circumstances will tell me that God doesn't care about me. My circumstances may tell me that God doesn't love me. My circumstances may be telling me that God's not there for me, but the writer of Hebrews would say, no, no, no. I'm not listening to my circumstances. I'm not judging God's character by the circumstances in my life. Oh, no, because I saw him die on a Roman cross. I saw him stretch out his arms for me. I saw him prove his faithfulness and his love for me. I don't have to doubt that. It doesn't matter how hard my life is. My life's not nearly as hard as what he went through for me. So I'm not doubting. I'm following. And I saw the empty tomb. I talked to him after the fact. So I'm not doubting. I'm following. Let all the difficulties come that may. I wish they wouldn't. I wish God would take them away. But even if he doesn't, it does not matter. Because I know the character and nature of the one I follow. I know how deeply he loves me. I know who he is. I know that he's for me. And I am building my life and I am hitching my faith to him, the one who lived, died, and rose again. See, this is what enables you and me to have an in spite of faith. What I mean by that is, in spite of the fact that I prayed and prayed and prayed and God never answered my prayer, I'm still following him. In spite of the fact that I lost that loved one so unexpectedly and it seems so cruel and it seems so unfair, I'm still following. In spite of the fact that my kids ended up dealing with that difficulty, and they had that disappointment, and I'm just so frustrated by it, and they were so mistreated, and it was so unfair, in spite of all of that. I don't know why God let that happen. I guess God could have changed it if he wanted to, but none of that matters. In spite of all of that, I'm still following. In spite of the fact that I have been through tremendous pain, in spite of the fact that I've suffered deeply, in spite of the fact that I've had some of the darkest moments of my life and I have battled depression and I didn't know if I was going to make it out. And in the middle of that, I couldn't even feel God with me in spite of all of that. I'm still following. Why? Because I am not determining how much God loves or cares about me by my circumstances. I'm determining it by the fact that Jesus lived and then he died on a cross for me. He proved his love for me. I, I don't have to doubt that anymore. And then he rose again and proved to me exactly who he was. There was God in human flesh. Nobody else could have done that. And so in spite of everything my circumstances are saying to me, 
I'm going to trust what Jesus says about me instead. See, you can trust what Jesus said because he rose from the dead. You don't have to listen to what your circumstances tell you are true about you. Because Jesus proved he is who he claimed to be. And he proved that he cares about you deeply. So the reason you and I can have hope even when we suffer immense loss, the reason you and I can have trust even when there is unexplainable uncertainty, the reason you and I can have confidence even in the middle of unspeakable suffering, the reason you and I don't have to be shaken even when life is difficult is because Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. And when you anchor your faith to that truth, when you make the foundation of your faith the resurrection and not your circumstances, then you have an in spite of kind of faith that can never, ever, ever be shaken. So that leads to the question, well, what is faith? And specifically, what does it mean to put your faith in Jesus? What does it mean to put your faith in God? What does it mean to make the foundation of your faith the death and the resurrection of Jesus? Those are great questions, and we're going to dive into those next week. Don't miss next week. But today, I want to leave you with a question. And it's a question you may not be able to figure out the answer to this week. That's okay, but it's worth reflecting on. Because the answer to this question, even if you don't know the answer, there is an answer, and it is impacting everything that is going on in your life right now. It's impacting the way you view everything in your life right now. The question is this. What's the foundation of your faith? What's the foundation of your faith? Is the foundation of your faith you? For some of us, it is. Is it your ability to control things? Are you trusting in your ability to figure everything out? You're smart enough. You'll be able to make it work. You trusting in your ability to navigate circumstances and to come up with a plan and to be able to execute and to work your way through things? Is the foundation of your faith the quality of your life? Is the foundation of your faith the circumstances around you? Or is it the one who lived, died, and rose again for you? Listen, here's what I want you to know. If you have circumstantial faith, and the reality is we all have it at times. If you have circumstantial faith, your faith is not strong enough to withstand the pressures and the pain of life. It's not. Your circumstantial faith will not last for you. Circumstantial faith is a terrible idea. You know why? Two reasons. One, because we are terrible at interpreting events and circumstances, aren't we? We misinterpret circumstances all the time. And the reason is because we don't have the perspective. We don't have a big enough perspective, a long enough view of what's going on. And so we all the time find ourselves in circumstances and we interpret them one way. And then later on, with the benefit of more time, we realize, oh, oh, we were wrong about that. It's kind of like a three-year-old who's being taken by his dad to another chemo treatment. And if you ask that three-year-old in the middle of that experience, hey, does your dad love you? He might be tempted to tell you no. Why would he be putting me through this pain again? But you know, and I know, and that three-year-old, with the benefit of some time as he grows older, he will know. Oh, his dad loved him unconditionally. His dad loved him immensely. 
There's a bigger perspective. Those circumstances weren't what they seemed. I'm just telling you, we're terrible at interpreting circumstances. If you base how God feels about you and you base whether you can trust God on the circumstances in your life, you will always misinterpret them. The other reason it's a terrible idea is because we're terrible at interpreting the voice of God, aren't we? How many times have you found yourself going, well, well, God told me this and then he didn't do it? Well, sometimes we're just wanting God to hear us or to say something to us. We're just hearing what we want to hear. Listen, I love my wife deeply. I'm telling you, I can sit across the table from her. I can look her right in the eye. I can listen to everything she says to me, and I will still misunderstand half of it. Maybe I just hadn't been married long enough, okay? I'll probably need another 30 years. But I still misunderstand half of what she says, and I'm physically looking her right in the eye listening to her. So, of course, it's difficult to always understand the voice of God. Sometimes we put words in God's mouth, and we just want him to say something. Sometimes God is assumed to do some things by us. Because again, we're leaning into circumstantial faith. Well, if God really loves me, then he would. No, no, listen, I'm just telling you. Circumstantial faith is a faulty, fragile view of faith. It cannot withstand the pressures of life. I'm telling you, it can't withstand the pleasures of life either. Because when life is good, we all are tempted to drift away. When life is painful, we're all are tempted to walk away from our Heavenly Father. If you're building your life on circumstantial faith, it's not going to hold up. You need a stronger foundation. And the writer of Hebrews invites us to hold firmly to our faith, to build our life, to rest our faith on the identity of Jesus, the fact that he lived, he died, he proved his love for you. I mean, you may find yourself in a circumstance where you're doubting that right now, but come on, come on. He gave his life on a cross for you. You don't have to doubt if he has your best interest at heart. And you don't have to doubt he is who he claimed to be. And he would do what he said he would do because the tomb is empty. He walked out under his own power. He rose from the dead. So, in the aftermath of this crisis, you're going to have some kind of faith. I'm going to have some kind of faith. What kind of faith do you want to have? How do you want to come out of this? And what are you going to do to get there? This week, spend a little bit of time considering what the foundation of your faith really is. And then next week, we'll start talking about what it means to build our faith on something that cannot be shaken. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful that you love us, and we will be the first to admit that when life gets hard, when things don't work out like we want, when we're disappointed by things, when we go through painful circumstances, and I know there's so many who are watching today, that they've been through some things that are so, so difficult, and it has shaken their trust and their faith in you to the core. It's caused them to wonder where you are, to wonder if you care, to wonder if you're there, to wonder if you even exist. Some of them, they have gone through pain and difficulty and challenges and suffering that was caused by people who follow you or who claim to follow you. That's made it even worse because they just assumed, well, you were behind all of that pain. But God, would you help us to pause for these next few moments and to reflect on the fact 
that maybe, just maybe, we have been holding on to a faulty, fragile version of faith. And maybe we've been holding on to a version of faith that was way more contingent on you doing what we want you to do for us, on you making our circumstances what we want them to be, and not on the identity of who you are, Jesus, and what you have already done for us. So help us to wrestle with that, to have enough courage to be honest with ourselves about that. And to own the fact that maybe, just maybe, we have walked away from a version of faith we should have walked away from because it wasn't even genuine. But help us to be open to exploring what genuine faith looks like. And then give us enough courage, give us enough trust, give us enough faith to be willing to explore and to personally know not just who you are, but to embrace the truth that we can trust everything you say because you rose from the dead for us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast, it would really be helpful. And if you live near our church, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. For directions, service times, and information about our phenomenal children and student environments, just visit us at journeycalway.com. That's journeycalway.com. Look forward to seeing you soon.